Hey up and welcome to the Strategy Sessions. My name's Andy Jarvis. I am the host of the show. My full-time job, the one that pays all the bills and means I can do this and put this podcast together, is the Strategy Director of Eximo Marketing. We're a consultancy that works with manufacturers who want to start selling direct to consumer. So we help companies that really don't have that infrastructure, don't quite know how to get out into e-commerce world, build all that, put that resilience in, get better margins from the product, and um, build a data relationship with their customers that can help them grow over a long period of time. Why do I tell you this? Well, firstly, I don't really talk about that too much on the show. I'm not here to sell you. And secondly, it's because I'm here talking today to Mike Stevens. Mike is the author of the Direct-to-Consumer Playbook. If you're lucky enough to be watching me on YouTube, you can see that on screen. And if you're not, well, just click on the link in the show notes. It says the Direct-to-Consumer Playbook by Mike Stevens. Mike is the, uh, he, he was an early employee at Innocent, the smoothie company. He worked at Peppersmith, which was an early D2C confectionery company, and has since spoken to maybe 12, 15, 20 um, great direct-to-consumer brands for the book. He calls this the book he wished he had when he started Peppersmith. So he's put in case studies, he's picked the brains of some of the leading people in the industry and brought them into a book to shortcut some learning. So I read the book and loved it. Reached out to Mike. I was like, Mike, you seem like a great guest for the podcast. Let's put it together. And we did. So the conversation's coming up. With us doing so much D2C work these days, it just made sense to get him on. Some of these stories are stories that wouldn't necessarily fall within what we do at XMO Marketing, kind of native direct-to-consumer brands who just go and raise a bundle of funds and set off in D2C world. We, as I said, we work with manufacturers who are kind of moving into that D2C world, so slightly different, but a lot of the lessons in this book, and it is a good book um, that is definitely worth reading, a lot of the lessons are great for all sorts of companies. So if this is your thing, have a listen. And Mike's got some great insights. And do click the link below and buy a copy of the book because you'll get, he gives you the headlines and then you can drill into the detail. And it's a really easy read as well. So enjoy the book if you read it. And if not, just have a listen to Mike. He's going to give you some great insight. Here we go, Mike. Mike, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Brilliant. Well, listen, um, let's get straight into your story. Tell us a little bit about you and your background and why you're here talking to us today about your book, The Direct-to-Consumer Playbook, which I'm, if you're listening, um, you can't see me holding it up to the camera. <laughs> yeah. Well, great. Um, well, yeah, I guess the best way to describe myself as a um, I guess consumer goods expert, um, I've been in sort of food and drink consumer goods for the last 20 years or so um yeah probably the best place to start for me is that um when i left university back in the end of the uh the 1990s before 2000s i um that was in the days of sort of dot com first dot com bubble boom and all the stuff going on and i really loved all that and i wanted to set up my own business it's like look you know i'm, I'm gonna do my own thing um so sort of looked at different things and then obviously we knew in 2001 it all went bang and you know it was like oh this is not going to be as easy as i thought um but i was really lucky um in uh, the start of 2001 that one of my good buddies from school had started working for this weird little um uh, smoothie startup in southwest london and that happened to be innocent drinks so i got in right early 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 days um when it was just still uh, a very very scrappy little startup 
Um, and the reason I joined, I mean, it would be quite a fun business to get involved with and, you know, some, some fun people there. But the reason I joined is because it was a startup. And I thought, look, you know, let's see what it actually a startup's all about. What does it mean to, you know, to start a business from nothing? How do you grow it? What do you need to learn? What do you need to do? Um, so that's why why I joined. Um, and I guess I was just really lucky because it also turned out to be, you know, one of the most successful, um, you know, fun startups for the last 30 years or so. So, you know, that that was a break. But I guess it was no <clears throat> it was no accident. I ended up working for a startup because that's what I wanted to do. And I do recommend that to anyone now. Anyone who thinks they want to start their own business, go and find a startup to work for because not only do you see what it's all about, but you also just work out actually, is it you? You know, startups and being entrepreneurs, everyone likes the likes the sound of it, likes the idea, but the reality is it's really hard. It's you know, things don't you know things don't really go to plan. There's no thing set up for you. Um, you have to do everything yourself, and you have to get involved with absolutely everything um and you really that that's not for some people um but for those it is it's like wow you know it's a, it's a great place to learn and then you can take all those lessons and then do it for yourself so that's what I did so I was at Innocent for eight years um six of those I was running their operations and then for the last two I went up to Scandinavia to launch the brand up there and that was all you know thinking about you know again it's more yeah, I was I was doing quite a lot for the business, of course, but I was taking, yeah, I was learning a lot from that because I wanted to do my own thing. So it was in 2009 that I finally left after eight years and set up Peppersmith, the um, uh, natural healthy confectionery company with a good friend of mine, Dan. We uh, co-founded that business in 2009 and then I spent uh, another eight or nine years um running and growing that business so I, I was ceo so i guess it was my responsibility to um to grow the business and again you know from from nothing to a brand that you could find um you know in lots of different places it was mainly a retail brand so uh, in the uk you could find it in um in waitrose in boots and wh smith and holland and barrett whole foods market and a whole host of other places um and then you know because we were doing it in sort of the 2010s, this other thing was started to happen, and that was e-commerce and direct-to-consumer. Um, so, you know, we started doing more and more direct-to-consumer at Peppersmith, and, uh, you know, it was going quite well. And what was amazing about direct-to-consumer is that direct-to-consumer was growing Um and we weren't really doing much for it. It was just, it seemed to just happen organically. And retail was actually really bloody hard. I mean, retailers, you, you probably, you hear all the the, um, the stories about the supermarkets. They're absolutely true. In fact, it's probably even worse than you can imagine. Um, it's it's tough working with the retailers. But D2C seems to be a great thing because, you know, people just wanted to buy products from us. Um, you know, we could get to know them. You know, we were in control of pricing, we were in control of promotions. We could, you know, do whatever we wanted with the products we can yeah you know, we could do all the things that we wanted to do and give our customers a great experience so we love d2c um but one thing what happened so this was probably you know we we're doing decided to do more and more d2c about 2014 2015 one of the things that amazed me is that while i guess direct to consumer was quite new it wasn't that new and everybody seemed to be trying yeah trying to figure it out um, however, there was very little best practice out there. Um, you know, there was no book you could buy to tell you how to do it. 
so what I ended up doing was, you know, talking to, you know, the rest of my sort of founder peer group, you know, anyone else who knew how to consume a business. It's like, what are you doing with D2C? Um, and pretty much the same answer was from everyone was, um, well, we're doing it, but we're sort of just, you know, we're learning on the job. We're just trying to figure this out. It's like, yeah, so are we. Um, and it really, really did surprise me that there wasn't more best practice knowledge out there. So I really wanted to buy the book which told you, you know, as a, as a brand, this is the best way to do e-commerce and D2C. Um, but, you know, in the years we were doing it from Peppersmith, you know, right until I ended up selling the business in, in 2018, uh, the book still wasn't written. So what happened was after I sold, I ended up selling Peppersmith um, in 2018 after eight years uh, of, of growing it and making it a success. Um I worked for for the um for the company for another year and this took me to 2019 and yet lo and behold you know I stepped away from the business and this book still hadn't been written so the book for brand owners and founders who wanted to do um D2C properly um that book wasn't there so after selling the business I had some time on my hands and I and honestly I needed a bit of break from um, running the business so I decided to you know if no one else is going to write this book I'll do it so then I spent the next two years um, interviewing all the best founders of um, the best D2C companies I could find, you know, from like Huel, Grays, Lumen Wild, um, Casper, newer brands like Lick and Heights. You know, I just, you know, reached out to all these people. I mean, Mike, there's, there's some tremendous name dropping going on there, right? <laughs> you know, it's yeah, kind well, of a, is... a who's who of the D2C uh, glitterati you've just kind of name dropped in there. Yeah, I mean, you know, I tried to get the best. I mean, there's some that I didn't get. Um, who, oh, who go, was... go on, name some names. Who turned you down? Gymshark. Uh, so... I never liked Jim. Terrible guy. Yeah, Jim, oh, Jim, Jim from Gymshark. Yeah, well, yeah, no, but the Gymshark, I really, I really want to get, but I didn't get them. Who else? Oh, All Birds um, in the US. I wanted to, hear, you know, to hear their story. They were just mm -hmm. doing their their IPO at the time, so they they, they said they couldn't do it, uh, and a few others. But you know, let's not talk about the ones we didn't get. Talk about the ones we did get. Yeah. I was really lucky that I I was introduced to um, some just brilliant people who had been running really successful D2C brands. I mean, I was lucky because I knew some of them already from, um, you know, some from, from being a founder, but yeah, some of them, it was like, you know, sort of, you know, one or two uh, links away and I managed to get introduced and yeah, what I wanted to do in the book and that, you know, anyone who reads the book, it's really, it's a set of business case studies, which really is, it's the story of the founders and the business in terms of, you know, where they come from, what their big idea was and how they sort of built their business. But also from that, anyone who's really interested in D2C strategy, what I try to pull out from each of the case studies is what they did to become a success. Because as we all know, and, uh, you know, uh, D2C is actually quite hard. Um, it's really hard to be, uh, you know, a successful D2C business. It's hard to get scale. It's hard to get profit. Competition is uh, is is really, um, there's lots of it out there. And you get lots of naysayers. I know you had Mark Ritson on this podcast who just hates D2C. Um, so, you know, I think got... um, and if, you, if you've got this on without earphones and you've got children or, or grandparents listening, just uh, you might want to plug some earphones in quite quickly. I think Ritson's turn of phrase was direct to consumer, Load of fucking bollocks, Andy. Direct to consumer, my ass. What a load of bollocks. So I think that's an exact quote. It's something like that, anyway. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't really get it. I mean, Mark is like he's a brilliant marketeer and strategist. So uh, I I don't quite understand why he doesn't see, um, you know, what D2C is. He's, he, I think he focuses on, you know, the fact that it's hard to lots of businesses fail. Mm-hmm. um and he focuses in what it isn't but what d2c enables you to do it enables you to connect directly with your end customer and find great ways to communicate what your product and service can bring to them you know and that's like a marketer's dream so maybe um i don't know i don't i don't, I don't know why he's so down on it but he is to um i i'm gonna take uh i mean mark ritson is a man who needs no defending and i'll put a link in the show notes if you didn't hear that episode there's a link in the show notes um, go and have a listen. We talk about all sorts of stuff, direct to consumers on there. I, I think to to also criticize and uh, at the same time defend Mark. I, so in terms of his uh, a criticism of Mark, I would say that Ritson spends his life working with monster Goliath companies, right? Who are huge global businesses, mainly stuff. You know, he talks about his work he's done with um, LVMH and, and all sorts of brands that we've probably all heard of. So when he taught, you know, from we all see the world through the vantage point that we're looking at it from. And when Mark talks about direct to consumer, I'm pretty certain he only really talks about like the top two percent of D 2 C brands, the ones whose names just roll off your tongue, the is it Warby Parkers, Allbirds, Caspers, and people like that. And what he'd seen with those businesses is that they'd raised a lot of money, they'd made a lot of noise, they'd made a lot of customers, but actually hadn't made any money. And his point is very, it's like, if you're not making any money, at some point you're going to go bust. Is that, you know, um, selling stuff, selling tennis for a fiver isn't as difficult as people tell you it is. So um, I think that's that's his point. But I think as a criticism, he's looking at it from a very myopic view of, look, these are the, the kind of top couple of percent. There's a lot of case studies in your book of businesses that have started D2C and grown to 2, 10, 20, 50, 100 million in recurring revenue. And they're doing really well and making money. So you know, you look at that little bit of people who've raised series A, B, C, D funding, but are still losing. And yeah, you might criticize it. In Mark's defense, I think one of the things he's t- he talks about a little bit is that we're giving a name to something that already exists. And there are many brands as the D2C is evolving. And this is something I want to touch on over time. Like Nike are getting into direct to consumer. And he's like, it's not direct to consumer. It's just omnichannel. It's always been there. You're just reaching customers a different way. You've got retail stores, you've got wholesalers, you've got whatever. It's not different. So I think he's kind of, he's looking at a small subset is what I would say. Um, but he, like I say, he's a man who needs no defense. And you could probably have that argument with him yourself on LinkedIn. Yeah, I actually, yeah, I remember when he, he we first got on his uh, his soapbox about it. it. Was this was actually pre pandemic? He in marketing week he wrote a big piece, and I, you know, yeah, I was just starting the book actually, and I was like, oh, this doesn't make sense to me. So I, I wrote a repost, and you, you find it on my on my on my website and a blog if you want to read it. Um, but I, I'd say you know, a couple of things, um, which I think is important. I guess the reason that maybe Mark doesn't get as excited as I do, if he's focused on, you know, working with those, you know, sort of humongous brands who have really built all their, you know, they built their business around retail. You know, D2C is probably a distraction for him. But, you know, for, for me, I come from the startup world. You know, mm-hmm. I surround myself with founders and entrepreneurs. People are trying to do new things. Uh, and set things up from nothing. And I find D2C so exciting. I mean, not only now is the technology and the infrastructure available where anyone can start any brand from anywhere, 
that didn't always used to be the case. I mean, that's just, that is just brilliant. But what also D2C enables you to do is because you're selling direct to your end consumer, you haven't got any wholesalers and retailers in the way. You've got that direct connection. And you've also got lots of um, data and the ability to you know talk directly with your end consumers. You can just find out so much about them and what they need, and then you can make better products for them. You know, and as you know, and I see this world, you know, I live in the world again of being sort of founders and entrepreneurs. You know, we're here just to make, you know, better, you know, revolutionary products and services. Um, you know, that's that's why we're here. We're not just about just trying to make a slightly better mousetrap or, or just, you know, trying to set up a new line because we're a massive company and we need to get a bit more revenue in. We're generally just, you know, we're trying to do new things in, in new ways. And, you know, this heart in the last 10 years, you know, the technology has become available where, you know, more people can try more things. And, you know, I'm always going to celebrate that. So there's loads of stuff that you've said in the last couple of minutes I want to kind of pick up on and, and, and dive deeper on. Um, I'm going to come back to the negativity side of it in, in a minute. Um, I'll, we'll, we'll cross that bridge. But you, you use the phrase there that you used in the book about, are we just trying to build a better mousetrap? Are we trying to innovate and and disrupt sectors and things like that. And is this about the journey that D2C's gone on where the initial companies, like I genuinely having bought a mattress about two years before I'd even heard of Casper and that experience of delivery charges, strapping it to the top of the car, trying to kick it into the back and fold it. The whole thing was a disaster. It was an awful experience from beginning to end. And then you start to see these, these people delivering mattresses on bikes in New York. And you're like, how do my brain can't even compute how you deliver a mattress on a bike and there they were doing it. So this is this sort of approach of D2C isn't just about building a better mousetrap. It's about complete innovation and doing things hugely differently. Has that kind of waned a little bit now as the industry is maturing really? And we're talking about just people launching maybe just slightly derivative products, but it's more the business model that's different. Yeah, and I think this is this is part of the problem. If you've just got a you know a slightly derivative product, especially if you're a new brand, the chance of you are succeeding are so so small. I mean, you've got to as a new brand, you've got to have all this sort of marketing, education, and awareness and excitement to actually get people to come to you. And if you're new and your product looks, you know, it's only slightly better, you know, and it might be a bit more expensive because you're going to be a smaller. Why should anyone make that switch? Even if you've done the work and spent the money where they come to you, it's like, actually, this doesn't, this only looks a little bit better or I don't see the difference. And why should I buy from you? Because I don't really know you. I can't trust you. Um, I don't know if the product's going to be, do what it said it's going to do. I don't know if you're going to behave in the way that I expect you to behave. So I'm just going to go to someone I trust. So that is the problem of just doing something slightly better. And one of the um, one of the case studies in the book was um, a guy called Oliver Bridge who set up Cornerstone, who was one of the first real big sort of DTC successes in the UK. And he, you know, he, right early, early, early on, he saw what Dollar Shave Club were doing in the US and thought, you know, that's a that's a really good opportunity for UK and Europe. So he was the first one to do it here. Um, but what, you know, what brands like Dollar Shave Club and Cornerstone and even Casper, what they've seen is if they can show that, you know, they can demonstrate a successful business, they're going to get competitors, right? 
and so the competitors come into the market and it makes it you know things marketing becomes more expensive and it, you know it's just a bit harder to actually get pro, you know people to buy your products because there's lots of alternatives out there mattresses is a, is a good example where um what happens you know mattress you know casper's really started the revolution but then loads of other companies came into it and then they tried to land grab and then everyone was cheaper than chat casper doing the same thing it's like wow you know this, this is really tricky so oliver from cornerstone he said to me like mike if you're if you're going to launch a d2c brand today you've got to be 10 times better than what's already out there and that just means actually that's that's you know you've got to be significantly better in terms of quality service or price or then you know probably you know revolutionary in what you do and if you do those things that's you know that's going to help that's going to mean that you've got well as long as people want it you've got a chance to succeed but if you just do the same thing as everyone else i mean as an entrepreneur i just find that's really boring why bother i think as, as a the, the the classically trained marketer in me looks at the, the four p's product price place and promotion and the more of those p's you can be different on the more it starts to separate your offering so if your product is exa- is, is different but you're selling it in the same places for the same price and promoting it in the same way. It just looks the same, even though it may well be different. Um, if your price is different and it can be higher or lower, then that helps it. And if you're selling it in a different place, which was probably a, a standout for a lot of D2C businesses initially, we're selling online and direct to you. It's like, whoa, it's 2010. This is new. That's maybe not as unique anymore, but there are ways in terms of putting that business model together and recurring orders and the promotion of it, can you do that differently? If you can put two, three, or four of those differently to everybody else, you start to separate yourself from the market. And there's some great studies in there of companies that have done that a little bit, I think. Yeah, and this is, and I think this is where D2C is different to, you know, where it was 10 years ago. And, you know, and maybe there's some of that, that legacy cynicism is still around. Like Dollar Shave Club, you know, it's a good example. So Dollar Shave Club, they just said, look, we're going to produce quite good products but you know are they any better than Gillette or the other brands that you could buy maybe maybe not I don't know I think that, that can be quite subjective but what they said we're going to do it cheaper because we're going to cut out all the middlemen you know there's no wholesaler there's no reseller you know we, we can sell this directly so it's going to be it's be better for, and we'll give you a subscription so you never have to think about this again so that was actually is more convenient and it was a bit cheaper that's that's great but what has happened again you know over the last 10 years yeah, all of those, I guess those that low hanging fruit has gone. So brands now have to be a lot more innovative. They've got to have a better product. They've got to have a price where you know customers see real value. And they've also got to treat their customers really well. They've got to give them great service. And that's not just service in terms of just making sure the product gets to them once they've ordered it. It's after service. It's about giving them more information. It's about helping them use their products. You know, that's what all the best brands are doing now. And again, and D2C it does give you a platform to do that because you've got your website, you've got your newsletters, you've got your emails and some are using SMS. There's different things you can do. You've got to do it, but you've got to do it well because if you don't do it well, you're going to lose out. So I think one of the key lessons I took from, uh, from the book is this focus on customer service. And it's something that we know anyway, but the, the kind of a real customer service is a differentiator uh, sort of came through from some of the case studies you told in the book. Now, I don't mean to be rude, Mike, um, but you and I are possibly of a similar vintage, um, which many younger people would just call us really old. Um, and sadly, th- this is a thing, right? And you talked about customer service and being able to be easily contactable, putting your phone number out there. And I put a post on LinkedIn the other day about, my top tip to younger marketers is to get comfortable using the phone. 
pick it up, talk to people, answer it. It's, it's a superpower. And the number of people who criticized me for that post was unbelievable. How it's only what boomers do. There was one guy who said, only boomers and undesirables use the phone these days. <laughs> I was like, wow, right? And Love it. so much hatred and anger for, you know, it's like, just talk to people. But this comes through really strongly from the book about having a direct relationship with your customers is not just about ones and zeros on reports and Google Analytics and sales figures. It's actually about talking to them, isn't it? I mean, that, this is how you find out. You know, your job as a brand uh, is to serve, you know, your customers. You're meant to be solving problems, making their life a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Um and that's that's your job. And so, but unless you really understand who they are, what their values are, what they want, how you can you know, how you can serve them, you can't do that properly. And one of the best ways to do that, you can do it via you know you can use the data to tell you like who clicked on what product, what's selling well, what's 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 a good review. You can do customer service. Uh, so you can do customer surveys. Um, that's great. You're you know, you should all do all these things, but a really, really powerful way of doing it is actually just talking to customers. And, you know, and again, I used to do this time all the time in, in, in Peppersmith. And the, the, the way you normally got to do this is people, some people will call up, they've got a question. Um, but most people would actually call up because they've got a problem. You know, they either they didn't understand something or they got, you know, more than likely it was, it was a problem with their delivery. Um, so your first job is to solve that whatever you know whatever was up you know fix that for them um so once you once you once you've done that and you've done, you've done it in a really quick efficient polite way then you've got them on the phone and you've got this opportunity to ask them how did you find how did you find us what do you think what's, what's, what's your you know your favorite product i mean how often do you buy where do you normally buy from all of these things you, you, you can find out what do you think we should do next it's just it's just a brilliant resource and in the book there's a you know a great uh one of, one of my favorite stories is towels.com so towels.com do um pet food and they started out in i think 2014 so this is when d2c was first kicking off and they got it into their heads when they first started that you know because they were a tech business and maybe maybe they were you know, they, can't, they can't have been boomers because their big idea was like let's just do things all electronically we don't need to have phone numbers. We don't need to talk to our customers. Let's just like, you know, we can do it with automated emails um, and just using great tech. That business nearly failed within six months. It got to the point where, you know, they had that meeting with, you know, with their, with their board and investors, like, shall we carry on? Because the numbers look really horrific. If we continue, we're going to run out of runway and then, yeah, it's game over. Um, but what they did instead is like, look, we're, We've got a really good setup. We think we've got really good products, but our customers don't seem to be quite getting out. How do we do that? And they, and what they did, they started talking to their customers. So they started, they put a phone number on their website. They started proactively calling customers, having those weird boomer boomerish conversations where you talk to someone and you ask them questions and then they ask you questions and then you find out more and you build, you build rapport and you build a relationship. But from that, what they found, there was a couple of things that, you know, couple of small things that we're doing wrong that were having big impacts Mm -hmm. but also because they was having those conversations they discovered um you know what the real passions of their customers were and because they were also talking to their customers the customers realized they had a load of shared values i mean they primarily they were just really really cared about dogs 
and you know dog owners loves their dogs and that's all they you know that's what they want to talk about and when they found out the company who served them you know also loved dogs and wanted to look after dogs and could talk about dogs all day it's like wow we've got things in common i trust you i know what you're about and then they built their business from there and it's gone from strength to strength in fact they sold it to i think it was it was uh, nestle a few years ago and uh, you know and the business is still still going from strength to strength but they could not have succeeded without having those direct conversations with their customers to find out what was up and what those customers need i think um as well as being really old you and i both share an allergic reaction to dogs as, as something that that we have in common you mentioned that in the book and i, yeah. I can't think of anything worse than working at tails.com because i just spent my whole life sneezing um mm-hmm. but you do you mentioned that this sort of, you used to do this at innocent where uh, I think there's a lovely line you use about, yes, it can be a little bit of a distraction to the day-to-day, but how important is it just to lift... The, when when the phone rings, everyone in the organisation was told to answer it. Yeah, And that sort of approach to, it doesn't matter what your job is, your job is talking to the customers. It just puts the customer right at the heart of the organisation, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's great. I mean, it's, it's, it's brilliant to just find, talk to the customers. I mean, it's actually... It, it is a distraction because sometimes you've got your head down and you just want to get out my stuff. You've got deadlines and all the things yeah. that you have in every business. But when that phone rings and you talk to the customer, you actually, it's a reminder of what you're all about. You're all about just, you know, making products for these people. And yeah. And uh, yeah. And you just have all sorts of conversations and it, it's fantastic. It's something I learned very early on at Innocent. And I just, that goes through all of the businesses that I've ever worked with. And, and it does make me cringe now. And I think some, you know, this is where a lot of, D2C and actually brands in general get wrong when they outsource their customer service team. It's Your so call is important to us. Please wait for another hour. Oh, and then you get someone on the end of the line who just hasn't got a clue. They read from mm-hmm. a script and they can't yeah. really help you out. And they certainly can't, you know, they, they can't add more than, you know, maybe just solving that initial problem. Like, where the hell is my delivery? Um, they, you, the, all those brands miss out on all that, that such rich interaction. But and also... Nothing- they're not building relationships and they're not building trust. They're not building credibility. It's such an own goal. And this is where, where brand is important and misunderstood. People think, well, we've got a brand. We have a logo. Our branding is strong and we do brand advertising. Therefore, we've got a strong brand. Every touch point of the customer with you is your brand. And those bits start to fall down. I love the Ritz-Carlton approach where I think everyone who works for Ritz-Carlton has a budget of solving customer problems if you go with a problem whether it's to the doorman the receptionist or the cleaner they can solve that problem up to a certain value without having to go and get anyone else's approval and they trust their staff to do that and it's like if you don't trust your staff to do that why do you trust them to have a job anyway i just think it's such a, a simple way of approaching it but so complicated for so many companies but that, but that's you know that's where you're there. You're there to solve problems. That's 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 the job. The and you know what brand you miss out on a brand. You, you mentioned it, it's like people think they've got a brand because they've got a nice website and a nice logo and you know sometimes they put some posts up on Insta or, or do whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, but a brand is all about this is the way you communicate. You know who you are, what you stand for, what you care about, and what you can do for people. And it's so hard to do those things just by having a nice website. You've really got to build a community. You've got to build, um, you know, relationships. You've got to build um, conversation. And that's just not only your own conversation. And um, uh, JP, the founder of uh, All Plants, told me this. He said he wanted to make sure he's got a brand and a brand story where people are talking about it around the dinner table. Yeah. 
that's it. You get, and you can't you can't do that with a Instagram ad or a you know or a nice website. Definitely. I mean, I hope no one listened to that last two minutes because you've given away kind of ninety percent of what I do as a job. So hopefully, if you were listening to that, forget about it. You can just employ me to do it. It's fine. Um, it's a, moving on. You talk. We're talking, talking to. We're talking, talking to customers. Doesn't make any sense, but let's stick with it. Which leads us into community. Um, there's strong stories in the book about how D2C brands build community. Is it possible to have a D2C brand without building that community? Or do you think it's an essential pillar of success for Um, any D2C? It's really possible to build a D2C business with no community, but it's not. Well, I guess it is possible to build a brand, but if you want to build a strong brand, you have to have community and yeah. remember what community is a community is a collection of like-minded people who are all focused around one thing mm-hmm. and the thing that they you know the community have in common is you know what you do what you stand for and what you do for them i mean good examples in the book there's tribe uh, you know the um they make uh yeah sort of uh, snack bars and food and drink for Primarily for you know for athletes and runners, um, but although they also make health, healthy snacks to anyone for anyone. But you know their community, those people who care about fitness, running, cycling, um, and you know that's the thing they've got in common. But I guess what they've also got in common is um, events and nutrition and a certain way of looking at life. And they they build a community around that. And what Tribe have done really well is they build a community of like-minded people and they get their community together at, at um, mainly running events. They do lots and lots of events. And some of them can be like a, you know, a half an hour, half an hour, you know, sort of, um, jog around the park at dinner all the way up so they do these multi-stage multi-country events which are you know they, they, they're huge so they have all these events and then they also um you know those people who come to the events they make products for them so they end up just making you know, us find out what that community needs and they make products to serve that community um and then what they also do is that you know with their products and their events it's all about they give they raise a lot of charity and people don't know this about tribe their main reason for existing is to you know for their foundational charity which is all about you know eradicating modern slavery mm-hmm. um so they have these events which are the primary um the primary opportunity for them to raise money for the charity um and then they all the people come to the events they make products for and then they use their um they use the money they make from the products to create more events. So you know we call it like, like this flywheel effect, and it just builds and builds the business. So you've got the charity, you've got what they're into, which is you know running the fitness, and then you've got the products. Yeah, brilliant story. It is a brilliant story. So um, as we we're going through and ticking off some of the great brands in the book, we'll talk maybe about some of the others now into maybe maybe some of the more nuts and boltsy background stuff of, of running a D two C vertical integration. Um, running everything from production through to, uh, you know, arriving with a customer. Um, it is an important part for a lot of the stories in the book. Uh, it's a difficult thing to do, though. There's a reason why for years, and even now, lots of companies just specialize in doing one bit of that value chain. How important is it then to D2C businesses to be in control of everything from sort of cradle to grave, for want of a better phrase? And um, how difficult does that make it for new businesses? Oh, I mean, it, it like all things, it depends. I mean, what virtually integrated businesses, it just gives them complete control. And this is really important if you're doing something brand new, 
So if you're doing something diff- way, way different from everyone else, you cannot just go and find a factory to do it for you because it just doesn't exist. I mean, the very first example I, I, I saw of this was actually Graze, Graze.com back in sort of 20, 2010. So Graze started at a very similar time to Peppersmith and there was, you know, and they were down the road and I knew some of the people there. Mm-hmm. And I, it was it was just a, such an eye opener to me that they were doing things in such a different way to how we were approaching things at Peppersmith. And the things we were doing at Peppersmith was very similar to the things we did at Innocent. So, yeah, I guess that was a, an older business model. And, you know, so we were finding suppliers to make products and we put in our efforts into making products and then selling them to, to retailers. Whereas Grays was like, nope, we're going to build our own factory. We're going to make our own products and we're going to ship them directly to, to the end consumer. It's like, wow, that's like Okay, I sort of get the direct-to-consumer bit because that seems like a good way of just getting products from A to B. But why aren't you using a factory? And I was like, well, mate, we can't use a factory because we're, no one no one does things in the way we want to do it. So we ha- they had to do it all from scratch. And it was like only we know, you know two years later when that business has hit 50 million, I think, when, well, I don't know if we'd even got to our first million at that stage. It's like, ooh wow maybe that was the right way to do it but what what it means for any businesses who are looking to have um this strategy where they're doing everything it takes a lot of infrastructure you know you need big funding to do it i mean uh, all plants is a great example you know they've they got all their own they're making all their food from scratch um and it just you know knowing the sort of their story they've gone through so many kitchens and warehouses over the years it's been really difficult for them because they can't just buy you know we're going to build a factory that's going to service for the next 10 years because they don't quite know what the demand is and they certainly can't afford that infrastructure they've got to do it bit by bit by bit and their you know i guess their infrastructure has to grow with with, with their demand and their business whereas if you're outsourcing you know the great bit about outsourcing is that you uh you've got full flexibility if you need more you can ask for more and if you need less you just ask for less and that's it and you don't get that if you're you're vertically integrated but what vertically integrated gives you is complete control and for a lot of offers that is absolutely essential yeah and and i think there's a huge capital investment isn't there you you mentioned grays and they're one of their founders had just exited somewhere and had a lot of films yeah, Love Film. So yeah, so I mean they they had a huge success with Love Film, uh, and then they, they took the idea of you know they were delivering you know it was that you know sort of pre Netflix age where you were delivering uh, DVDs through the post. Great service. Again, no no late fees ever. I still remember the strap yeah. line. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was great. as opposed to going to blockbusters, which you know was was good and bad. So there was that, um, and then they thought right, why why don't we use that model but do it with snacks instead? I mean that was. That was pretty radical, and one of the things, one one of the, the the real lessons from that was actually it's the sort of thing if they were if they were food and drink um, experts, they would have thought that's a stupid idea. But because they were outsiders, they were just able to apply what they 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 did with DVDs for food, and it and it completely worked. Um, so you know, this is one of the things you know if you're starting a new product or service, you're absolutely going to get incumbent saying that is the most stupid idea i've ever heard and it's not going to work and do you know what they might be right but the ones that are not right yeah they're they're the ones who are kicking themselves two years later going bloody hell yeah that was a really good idea the right way to do things talk to me then a little bit about the personalities behind the business because in the book you focus on the things they did but there was something that was kind of weaving through the book 
but I didn't really land on right until the end. Uh, so you, I think it was Bloom and Wild, the flower company, their founder had been at Bain. Uh, JP from All Plants had been at McKinsey. Um, Grays.com had come out of the Love Film founder. Uh, there was uh, the Tights company that I forget. She was a business consultant who had... And, and the, the guy who founded the jeans company, Hype Jeans in Wales, had kind of worked in ad agency backgrounds. And what it kind of spoke to me about when I finally kind of worked it out was that a lot of these found this isn't the entrepreneur that you see in the films, which is Zuckerberg coming out of college and coding something in his bedroom, uh, or the Steve Jobsy garage sort of, uh, not Steve Jobs, there, uh, um, Microsoft sort of founding story of building in your garage and then off you go. These are people with kind of sterling business credentials who could probably go and get a job in any high street bank in a fairly senior position who've decided to do something different. Is that just, have I misrepresented some of the interviews you've done and maybe just found the evidence to fit my hypothesis? Or is that the sort of personality you found behind the businesses? No, I mean, there, there, are, there, are, there are a couple of founders in the book that um, have really, yeah, I guess they were, they were young, young and inexperienced and their, their passions took them to where, where they want to be. Um, I mean, the best example actually was um, uh, Jane, the founder of Sue Group. You know, she was a, an art student who came across this, you know, she invented this amazing product, which if, if you don't know Sugru, it's like a moldable plasticine that sets overnight. It's really handy for making and repairing. And, and she invented this thing at art school. And then she spent the next six years actually trying to refine it so she could commercially commercialize it and sell it. Um, and she was a great example of, you know, someone without a business background who, you know, who made a success. But you're right. For most of the uh, most of the founders, they have done stuff before. Either they've had, you know, their own businesses before. You mentioned uh, David Hyatt from Hyatt Denham. He was the founder of Howie's Out, and he did that out of coming out of that agency. Um, you know, there was Graham at uh, Graves. Yeah, Casper. The Casper team had come Casper, out. The Casper team, where the, yeah, the, main the drink company as well. Uh, Ugly Drinks, who'd worked at. Coca Vita and yeah, Vita. Well, I guess that's industry experience. But a lot of the founders, I guess, you know, one of the points I'm going to make is that a lot of the founders have actually started. their you know, they, they've had more than one business, mm -hmm. and those who hadn't, they've you know, they've been quite successful in whatever field they're in. And the reason that that you know, sort that comes through the book is because again, running businesses is really hard. You know, yeah, having man. successful brands <laughs> is really hard. Having the networks to you know to solve all the problems that you need to solve to um to to make things a success you know that that takes takes a lot and it's very very hard to do that just that you know just with no i guess no industry expertise so most of the founders they, they've learned their lessons mm -hmm. and you know all the founders they're still learning um but and i guess they get better and better at their job each day they do it um so uh yeah so there is i i guess it really helps and this is why i go back to the start of this interview i mean what i knew when i wanted to start my own company I was, you know, it was probably a really good idea to work for another startup so I could learn. Yeah, and, you know, and my plan, actually, when I joined Innocent, I wanted to be there for two or three years, you know, get that experience and then go off and do your own thing. Yeah, yeah. I ended up being there for eight because it was just such a brilliant company to work for. And I was learning so much. So, I mean, I think that's, that's what you got. So all these founders, you know, they've got a real, you know, thirst for knowledge. They want to learn and they want to be better. But, you know, one thing that really came through the book, and, you know, I talk about this in the summary, is they have a real passion to make products and to serve. They're not entrepreneurs who just see a gap in the market and they're like, oh, we're going to exploit that gap. 
there are actually people who really care about their craft, what they do and it, what it means to their own customer. And that's probably why they're also so good at customer service. Because yeah, actually- it, it just comes naturally to them. Yeah. Um so let let's uh let's get miserable about this for a minute. Okay. There there are challenges out there at the minute. We're coming into a recession, uh, but everyone's facing that recession. But there are a couple of things that are happening in the market at the minute which are making D2C look like a bigger hill to climb than maybe some other industries are facing. So uh, you talk about this in the book, the rising ad costs on digital. It used to be you'd throw some money at digital, customer acquisition costs were low, great. For various reasons, declining use on Facebook products and more advertisers coming in, and digital prices are skyrocketing there. Um, you talked about the technology used to be a huge barrier. You had to work out when you started Peppersmith how to cobble different bits of systems together. Now, you know, by the time you've listened to this podcast, you could build your website, have most of everything built while you're listening to us talking and launch in an hour. What that also means is that barriers to entry for this have, have just fallen ridiculously. Everything that makes it attractive for you to just start up your own business looks that way for everyone else as well. Um, so you've got rising competition, rising costs of customer acquisition, and all the big companies are now looking at direct-to-consumer and thinking, why don't we do this? We can make better margins and have a data relationship. I mentioned Nike. I think they make something like 40% better margin by selling direct than selling through a retailer. So you've now got the biggest companies in the world moving into your direct-to-consumer, selling people, you know. Is this now just a huge mountain to climb that is going to see direct-to-consumer confined to a footnote in history of like the second dot-com boom? No, this is <clears throat> this is just how it's always been. I mean, there was, um, you know, anyone who wants to, you know, make a product and set up a brand, build a business, they have to fight, you know, for their, for their space. Um, there was a brief moment in time about 10 years ago and you said when, you know, when Facebook ads were cheap uh, and there wasn't so much competition out there, you could be a dollar shave club and do something, you know, not that radical, but you can make a real success out of it. Those days have gone. Let's get over that. But let's just focus on all the things that, you know, people have been focused in, focused on ever since they've been making products and services, which making sure that you've got a better product that solves a real problem and you can deliver that to your customers at a price that they 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 find acceptable. That's your job, and that is no different now than it was, you know, ten years ago, fifty years ago, hundred years ago. So you know, it is really hard um, to build brands and build businesses. There are advantages with DTC, as we said. You know, the low barriers of entry, so you can get a product out there, you can test it, you can see, you know, what people think of it. You can that's easier than ever. But if you want to build, you know, a big sustainable business where you're turning over, you know, you need to be into the millions to make it make it really viable. Yes, there's lots of competition out there. But if you've got a product that serves a need that no one else is and you care more about it than anyone else, there's a good chance that you can still succeed. I don't want to just make this a, a Ritson podcast, but I'm going to ask the question anyway, because when you said Dollar Shave Club, that's one of the, th- the examples I think he gives is that Dollar Shave Club, we talked about being a success and they exited having sold to Unilever for a yeah. frighteningly big number. But I'm right in thinking they never made any profit throughout the whole time. And when Unilever bought them, still haven't made a profit since then. Yeah, I'm, and you know what? I'm, I'm not, I don't know all the numbers for Dollar Shave Club, but the numbers I do know about is for Casper, who we know is similar, yes. similar, yeah. similar vintage and similar size and similar renown. Um, yeah, they they did make they made profit at the beginning of their journey, 
Uh, and that's because they just had such a great business model and a great brand and they were making profit. And then all of a sudden, all the competition piled in. You know, some of them were undercutting them on prices and there was just, you know, a lot more to choose from. And it meant all of a sudden they were having to spend, you know, all of their money on marketing just to stay alive. And it, that meant that they didn't make any profit. And this is why when they launched and they did their IPO and and, and launched on Wall Street, um, the stock market didn't like them very much. And people like Mark Rinson could definitely say, this is a load of crap because here's a business that thinks it's big and successful and they never make any money. Um, so, you know, there is a bit of that. And I think what the what the problem is, is that, you know, the D2C landscape changed so quickly. Um, it was very hard for lots of businesses to react. I remember, I don't know if you remember them, but there was a great business. Well, they're still around now, but in a different guys called Mojave's who made um, slippers and they, you know, and they sold lots of them you know, by doing Facebook ads. And they were a real success for a really brief period of time. And then they, they lost money and they went into administration and it all got it got really ugly. But all of that, that, you know, that that story, that that timeline from start to this is absolutely amazing and brilliant. So actually, this is a disaster and we're dead. You know, that was over about two or three years. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I guess the rules of the game have changed. So, um, yes, it is hard to make money, but, you know. Again, it's about building. If you think about it from first principles, let's build products, let's build great brands. And if you can do that, you can build up a business. But what you can't do, and this is where, again, you know, the criticism came into D2C is there was a lot of hype and a lot of businesses were overvalued. Like Allbirds, for instance, when Allbirds, they they, they launched their, their, their stock offering, um, that went down 60%, I think, in a, in a month or so. Does that mean Allbirds is a bad business? No, it doesn't. But what it does mean, does it Does it mean it was overvalued? Hell yeah. But, but that's not a D2C problem. That's a stock market problem. You know, the, 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 the stock market is atrocious at valuing businesses, and it's supposed to be the thing that's great. You only have to look at the WeWork fiasco, and you're like, yeah, well, let's value the business this way. And, and it, it's, anyway, look, there's nothing rational about the stock market. It, it's you, There's all sorts of studies done about how irrational people's buying and selling motivation is on, on the stock market. So anyway, that's a podcast for another day. But, they, but it's the same. It's the same with like, um, you know, VCs and investors. You know, a few years ago, VCs and investors were throwing money at D2C thinking it was the next big thing. Actually, they're, now they're a lot more circumspect. It's like, ooh, show me your products, show me your route to market, show me your growth plan, show me your business model. And then if you're really lucky, I might take a small punt. You know, it's, uh, yeah, I guess it's changed. But again, there's, there's still lots of opportunity out there. You you know, just know going into it, it's not going to be easy. But D2C, just, just go back to why D2C is important. D2C is a really important platform for learning about what your customer needs and making better and better products. So you are crazy as a brand not to not to embrace it. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, I have a, a quick question I want to ask about advertising. We talked, touched briefly on the rising digital ad costs, and there's two different views of traditional ads um, in the book. Uh, Huell, the founder there, was a bit like, we tried some traditional ads and it was a complete waste of time. Casper found it a really great way to kind of protect their brand and their price point when they launched, uh, when they were getting hammered by competitors by using some more traditional ads. I'm sure the answer is a little bit, it depends, but do you have a view from your experience of when brands should sort of move into more traditional advertising space? Uh, again, it... it... It depends. I mean, traditional advertising generally it's, it's more expensive, so you can't do that until you you reach a certain size. Um, but it's just yeah, it's just another way to communicate to your customers. 
So, I mean, the, the difference is in terms of digital ads and traditional ads is digital ads, you know, you just get access to more data. So it's easier to see, you know, is is this particular campaign, is this particular activity, is it working, is it not? What do we need to change? You can do A-B testing and all that sort of stuff. You can't do that on, um, well, it's a lot harder to do it in sort of traditional ads. Um, but, you know, once you get, you use that to refine your messages and once you get your messages right, then you can, you know, Again, your products are right and your messages are right. Why don't you take that to a wider audience? Yep, brilliant. Well, look, I'm I'm aware of the time, so I'm going to throw a couple of quick questions at you. Um, firstly, retail. You've started off mentioning retailers. How how difficult is it working with a high street retailer? Uh, it's often seen as like the future for a lot of businesses, but it's really challenging, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is really challenging. And again, because you know there's such a high barrier. Yeah, you've got to have, you've got to make sure you can serve those, you know, their customers really well. So you've got to have a product that is really fit for purpose. You've got to have a supply chain you can deliver in. You've got to have your packaging right. You've got to have your customer service right. And you've also got to be able to deal with the demands of the retailer itself. Uh, and that is, that is really hard. So, yes, it is difficult. And also retailers are not, you know, because of, you know, competition from the likes of amazon they're not making the same margins they're not making the same profits that they used to be so they're going to try and you know squeeze you as much as they possibly can because they have to and that means that if you're not well set up to be able to absorb that pressure or know what to do yeah you're gonna you're gonna going to be um you're going to struggle so i mean retailers are they still serve a purpose right and again your job as a brand to make sure your customers get your products you know some of that do it D to C. For some, it's actually going to be really important to put in the shop. I mean, most, you know, a lot of people still don't want to buy a product that they can't, you know, can't feel, they Absolutely. can't feel um, they can't see the packaging. Or do they know the retailer? Because the retailer's also done their vetting. They've sort of said that you're a product that, you know, is a, you know, you, you're suitable to be sold to my customers. So they've, they've done, you know, a lot of the legwork. So they, you know, I guess that customer knows that if things go wrong, and they're, well, they're less likely to go wrong in the first place, but if they do, um, this the retailer is going to help me out and fix the problem as well. So they've got all that. So they, they have a great brand power, don't the retailers? <laughs> it's still reselling is still really important, um, but again, it's a different set of rules. And there's some great examples in the book as well. D two C brands who you know who want to make that leap into multi-channel, um, and they they didn't really understand what the retailers needed for them or the um, what what the re yeah the retailer um the the retailer infrastructure was going to mean to their brand and their business and things got very very hard so yeah anyone who's interested in yeah sort of how to go multi-channel that's covered in the book as well we've got some really great stories sue grew and casper are two good examples brilliant well listen um mike mike stevens the direct to consumer playbook is there's a link in the show notes if you want to click on it you can go and buy the book I recommend it. I recommend it so much. I left a review on Amazon. It's not, I think Mike mentioned about case studies, but it's not a case study book. Don't think back to your university days and think, oh, I'm just got case study after case study to plow through. There's a lot of Mike's own experience in there and some great storytelling, which kind of brings it all to life. So I, I definitely recommend it. Where else would you recommend that people can go to keep in touch with either direct to consumer or just business generally? Where do you read or listen to or what would you recommend for people? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's loads of great resources. I mean, there's loads of good podcasts on just direct to consumer, but but in general. But I, I would say, you know, it's find, find out what you're into. This is a great thing about the internet, that, you know, there's, there's so many resources out there. 
uh, find out what you're into. I, re I read a lot of books, which is why I wrote wrote books. The book wasn't wasn't there. So I, I, it depends. I mean, there's um, if you're into marketing, I always recommend Seth Godin. You know, he, yep. his books are fantastic. Um, if you're into brand building, um, you know, again, there's, there's there's loads of good resources. One one thing actually you might want to check out. It's a resource that I really believe in. You know, I mentioned uh, David Hyatt, who owns Hyatt Denham. He also owns the Do Lectures, who do a whole set of resources about you know entrepreneurial brand building. Really good resource to check them out. So I think that's a good place to start. Brilliant stuff. We shall drop links to those in the show notes. So Mike. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's been great to have a, a, a dance through direct-to-consumer and learn and grade some, some, some... Let me try that again. Mike, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been great having you have a dance through the book and find out more about the great stories that are in there. Uh, definitely recommend the book. I'm not just saying that because Mike's sat there. I've already told about three or four people to buy it and sent a copy to a client. So I'm definitely a fan. Mikey, thank you very much for your time. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on.